0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Is I try to remove all the mental distractions as well. I try to make sure everything's caught up so that my to-do list is done, so, so I can start with a clean slate, you know, that um, the bills are paid and that the dishwasher's empty and the dogs are walked and all that stuff, um, which sounds like a good idea up front. But I realized that with all this stuff going on with my mom this month and all the things that could get in the way, what I'm actually doing is I'm not giving God enough power to overcome my distractions and work through that. Um, I let my desire for these minor earthly things distract me. And so um, we can trust God much more than we think we can. And uh, I found that out today as he put this all together for me. Um, The other hard part is there's a pride component. And so this is a little bit of a confession as well. Recently, someone quoted back to me something that I used in one of my previous sermons. And I got all excited, right? I mean, God used me to speak into this guy's life and and uh, praise God, give him all the glory, right? All that's quietly in my head. But then the next thing the guy said was a real wake-up call. He said, do you remember that? Do you remember when Jeff said that? It was so good. <laughs> and I realized that I was actually more excited about what I thought I had done in my flesh in this guy's life instead of being super excited about what God might be doing in his life despite who got the credit and, and who said it. We always preach in this church that it isn't about the guy up here um, that it's about God. But there I was wanting it to be about me. Um, taking Jesus out of my question out of, out of my equation. And so why wasn't I still just as happy that God was doing a work or more so the guy was doing a work in this guy, then then he remembered the correct person of who it came from. It's uh it's a pride thing. All right, um, so here's a little story I heard, and this is gonna kind of help us uh put some things together later in the sermon. It's a uh a story about a guy named Charles Blondin. Uh in September of uh 1860, he made his claim to fame. He was a fantastic uh tightrope walker. He he would walk on the high wires. And in 1860, everybody came to know him because he was the first one to walk across the wire that was stretched across Niagara Falls. It was 1,100 feet, that's over a quarter of a mile. He was 160 feet off the water, and he stepped out with his long pole, and he started taking the steps real slowly, and he worked his way all the way across. And as he got there, everybody cheered. There were people from all over, people from Canada, people from America, people lying both sides of the river to see this spectacular event. So he gets to the other end and he puts down his pole and then he walks back on the wire backwards and makes it all the way across without his pole and backwards. And each time he did it, he added something more and more amazing to this feat. <clears throat> one time he went over with um, uh, a bicycle and another time he actually took a small stove out there and sat down and cooked himself an omelet in the middle of the wire. So the one time he went across, he had a wheelbarrow And it was filled with a a bunch of potatoes, a big potato sack. And he walked across with the wheelbarrow. And then he he walked backwards and took it back across. And everybody's cheering, oh my gosh, you're the greatest tightrope walker ever. Gosh, this is amazing. He said, let me ask you this. Do you believe that I can put a human being in this wheelbarrow and go across this wire? And everybody's like, yes, oh, we know you can do it. You're the greatest tightrope walker ever. Yes, we believe, we believe. He said, okay, who's going to do it? And not a single person raised their hand right? It's easy to say we believe, but their actions actually proved that they didn't believe in him. Not one of them did. The crowd all watched. They said they believed. I thought that was a pretty cool picture of what belief really can be, putting belief into action. So as we start to go into God's word, um, would you pray with me? God, we know that you are God over all Father, we just ask you to make your presence known to us here today. Guard us against prideful hearts. Guard us against distracted hearts. Lord, with ears that sometimes do not want to hear, let your words flow into our ears and, and let them flow in a way that, that draws us to you. It doesn't just give us information. As we study your word as a church family together, God, I just pray that we would be unified by your name and your name alone. Amen. So last week, Sam covered the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark. You can turn there, chapter 8. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you're new here, you might not have noticed that there are Bibles along the aisles, so just raise your hand up, somebody will bring you one. Also, we say this every week, so... The old fogies are probably tired of hearing it, but for you new folks, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, um, feel free to take that copy home and keep that. We'd love to have a, a copy of God's Word in your hand at all times and available to you. So last week, like I said, Sam covered the feeding of the 4,000 and um, the disciples got into the boat afterwards and they headed out away from Decapolis to Delmonutha and that's where our story picks up. So we'll start in Mark 8 verse 11. And do you not remember, when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So we've got quite a few cities here where they traveled, quite a few different things that happened. Um, we have three main scenes, and uh, as they're traveling around, um, we have a map we can put up to help you kind of keep track of what's going on, because some of the geography and the way it's laid out is important. Um, <clears throat> but uh, like Sam said last week, they were in Decapolis. You can see that in the bottom right or the southeast corner. Um, the uh, Sea of Galilee—it's about the size of Carlisle Lake in Illinois. If you've ever been there, it's just different shaped. So it's shaped kind of like the the uh, uh, the country of Africa. It's the bigger of the two lakes on that map. And so when they took off from Decapolis and went up to Dalmanutha, Dalmanutha is not actually on this map, but it's right next to Caperna- C- uh, Capernaum. Some people think that it might even be the same city as Capernaum by two different names. They're still kind of excavating and figuring that out. So whenever we say Del- Del Manutha, you can think of Capernaum. <clears throat> So that's where they went for the first trip in the boat. Uh, that's where, uh, Jesus confronted the Pharisees, or the Pharisees confronted Jesus. Uh, then they got back in the boat and went to the other side of the lake over to Bethsaida. You can see it on the upper right portion of the lake. And that's where, during that boat trip, is where they forgot to take the bread. And then in Bethsaida, once they arrived there, Bethsaida's actually just a little bit off the shore. It's a little bit of a hike. It's not right on the shore. When they got the, they, they, uh, uh, landed in, in the lake in Bethsaida, then they went, took the little trip up, and that's where, uh, the healing of a blind man took place. So that's kind of an overview, um, of what we're gonna do and what we're gonna look at. That distance of the lake from the very top to the very bottom is about 10 miles. So that gives you kind of a little bit of a perspective. <clears throat> now next week you're gonna see that they're gonna leave, uh, Bethsaida and they're gonna travel over land up to the north, uh, to Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. And that's where Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? And that's where the uh, the disciples kind of begin to start to get it a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> so let's get back in 11 to 13, the first section um, with the Pharisees. And they're demanding a sign. So they've arrived there in Dalmanutha or Capernaum, um, and Jesus is confronted by the Jewish cler- Jewish clergy. Sorry, my mouth is dry. So this was either Jewish territory or it was pretty near Jewish territory. If you look at it, the left side of the map is mostly Jewish territories, and the right side or the east side is mostly uh, Gentile territories. So here, here in uh, Capernaum or Delmanutha, uh, the uh, it's it's uh, it's pretty much a Jewish territory. <clears throat> now among the Jewish people, these Pharisees. And these uh, Sadducees and the Herodians, they were all there, actually. Um, Mark just mentions two of them, but they were all there. And these are their leaders, and they're asking for a sign. And that doesn't sound all that unrealistic when you first look at it, right? I mean, if you're going to follow a leader, you kind of vet them, right? You see if they got their stuff together, if it's somebody you really want to follow. But that's not what's going on. What's really going on here, we studied back in Mark 3, is that they were beginning to plot, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians, who didn't get along normally, we together getting along so that they could plot to destroy Jesus. <clears throat> In another gospel, it says that they actually demanded a sign. So this wasn't a vetting, this was an attack. Now the Jews, like I say, they were the, 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 the Pharisees and Sadducees were their leaders. The Jews, to these guys, they were like it, right? They were they were the bomb. They had all of it together. They had tremendous clout, they were powerful, they even had influence over some of the Roman dictator type of leaders that were um, that were oppressing the Jews. So they had a lot of clout. <clears throat> and Jesus went there intentionally. These leaders were thinking if they can discredit Jesus, they'll turn people away from him and without their leaders, where are those Jews going to turn? Back to the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they're trying to struggle to keep their power, their control, and their status. They're actually calling the shots here. They're demanding things of Jesus. Falsely, they're making it sound like, look, if you do what we we tell you to do, and you prove yourself to us, then we'll give you the belief you want. They're the ones setting the conditions, they're setting the parameters, and they're directing Jesus on what he's to do. So they don't ask for a sign, they command it. Give us a sign, and this time not a sign from Jesus, but a sign from heaven. So they're wanting something more dramatic than the things he'd done before where he'd laid hands on people or he healed people. They wanted something that was a sign from heaven. Some of the, uh, some of the commentaries said that people believed that uh, the Pharisees wanted a cosmic sign, something that nobody could dispute. Um, Other folks thought that they were looking for a sign from Jesus that he he was going to be their uh, military leader, that they were going to conquer Rome by military defeat. It's the kind of freedom, is what they were looking for, is a kind of freedom that didn't need a savior. Any great military leader could lead a war and win it. Again, what this would do is take Jesus out of the equation and turn everyone back to themselves. Now that kind of leadership, if you want to call it leadership model, is exactly the opposite of what we're going to study in Mark 10, where we'll learn about uh, leading by serving. They just couldn't see it. The long-promised Savior was standing right in front of them, but they were so distracted by their self-righteous hearts that they can't see it. I mean, they taught about it, they read about it, they knew about it, they promised people it was coming, and here it is standing right in front of them, and they can't see it. We think we're not like the Pharisees, but we actually look for assurances all the time. They wanted the assurance that this was the guy, right, by showing a sign. We want assurances that there will always be a great outcome, that we'll always have strong leadership, or that there's a a conclusive direction for our career, or that our deep well of material resources will never run dry. Or here's mine, information and data. That's what gives me reassurance, when I can see the cold, hard facts. Or here's one, how many of you had a medical thing going on, and the first place you run is Google or WebMD? Family, all these assurances are devoid of a Savior. They're things that will give us temporary assurance. We might say, oh yeah, maybe I do look for assurance things sometimes, like the Pharisees do, but at least I'm not like the Pharisees and I don't try to turn people away from the Savior and back to me. Really? Have you ever invited somebody to church or to G.C.? and we will excitedly say something like, man, I invited this guy from my ball team into the gospel, and now he wants to accept Christ. Something to celebrate. Does it make you twitch inside to take yourself out of that story and say it this way? Oh yeah, uh, somebody invited this guy into the gospel, and now he wants to accept Christ. You see, the evil one can very cleverly and very subtly derail the focus to be on who did the inviting Instead of what God's doing in their hearts. Or who whose sermon was quoted instead of what God's doing in their hearts. Which part of that are we really on fire for? The who or the what? Now, even though these guys are trying to undermine Jesus, he's broken hearted for them. He's heartbroken over it because of their hardened hearts and their lost souls. How do we know? Look at verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now this wasn't a sigh of exasperation or a sigh of frustration or a rolling your eyes kind of sigh. The Greek word here is stenazzo. And it means a groan or a deep longing or an expression of anguish. It shows that He has compassion for those that aren't just far from him, but that actually oppose him and are actually his enemies. And in this case, are plotting to destroy him. He tells them they're not getting a sign. When he calls them this generation, he's referring to them, you can see in other scriptures, as an evil, defiant generation who've had enough signs and are still defiant, and Matthew, he calls them an adulterous generation because they look to things other than God for their answers and for their sanctification. And on top of that, they try to draw people away from Jesus and back to themselves, like we said earlier. So Jesus talks about the fact that he's not going to give them a sign. And when we think of signs, we think of the kind of signs that we've already read about, the deaf mute or the, the woman with the bleeding disorder or the demons that were cast out or the multiplying of the loaves and fishes. But what he's talking about here, when he says no sign will be given, he's referring to something more. He knows that an even bigger sign has already been given to them, and we can read about it in in other Gospels, uh, where he told them about the sign of Jonah and how he was in the belly of the fish for three days, just as I will be in the tomb of the earth for three days. The difference is Jesus will rise and they will see this greatest sign, They'll see that he has power over death, power over destruction, power over darkness, over evil, and the power to give new life when he rises out of that tomb. And they're still not going to get it. They still will just outright deny it. Why? Because they're so distracted. They're pretending to see the answers. They're pretending to have all of the answers They're pretending to know everything because they want the Jews to follow them. So they're scrambling for their power, their status. It's their self-righteous hearts that are cutting Jesus out of the equation and it blinds them to what's right in front of them. So what's the big deal about bread? They're leaving Dalmanutha or Capernaum up here and they're headed over to Bethsaida. So this is this takes place on the boat trip over. What's the big deal about bread? they didn't have time. They didn't bring any. They forgot. What's the deal? Well, clearly they forgot. Scripture tells us that. So here's why it's a big deal. I mean, you can't just grab a little pocket change and run to Aldi and get a loaf, right? We got a map to, I mean, another picture to kind of show you after the map. They had to go through a big deal. Think about what it takes to make bread right now. You go to the store, you buy the yeast, you activate the yeast with the temperature of the water being just right so you don't kill it. You mix up the dough You knead it, you let it rise, sometimes you push it down, you knead it again, let it rise, put it in the oven and cook it. It's a lot, it's a lot of work, right? So think about what they had to do then. They not only had to do that, but think about it in their times. They had to plant the wheat, wait for the wheat to grow, harvest the wheat, separate the wheat from the chaff, grind the wheat into flour, then they could start the whole process of making the bread. Then they also had to make an oven. This is one kind. Sometimes they made them out of stone. This one's kind of out of out of a clay and soil and straw material. They would, they would form it in one layer, let that dry for a day or two, and they would form a second layer, let it dry a or day or two. It might be five layers. So you can see this would take five days to build this thing. Then they had to build a fire inside of it to cure it so that it could be used for baking. Then when they made their loaves of bread, they would slap them to the side like that, and that's how they would cook. So it's a big deal. You can think of a loaf of bread as about the size of a bread bowl that you put soup in today. So they can't make, that's good, thanks Justin. They can't make bread. They can't have unclean bread. They're going into Jewish territory, I mean uh, Gentile territory from Jewish territory. They're not supposed to have Gentile bread, right? And the, the big deal about that, I mean I don't want to go into that too much, but there were special ways it was supposed to be prepared by, by Jewish ceremony. Um, there was lots of things, but one of them I'll give you is um, Meat and bread weren't supposed to be anywhere near each other. They couldn't be baked in the same oven. You couldn't use the same utensils. You couldn't work them on the same table. So it all had to be kept separate. So they're not allowed to have this Gentile bread. They're scrambling for a plan. Jesus is trying to teach them big kingdom stuff. He picks something that maybe they can relate to, right? Their mind is on bread. The Pharisees are a problem. So he says, I'll put the two together. And we'll talk about the leaven. But they're so distracted by this bread issue that they can't even get the metaphor. I have to admit, I didn't really get at it either at first. What is what is the leaven of the Pharisees? Well, I come to find out, it refers to several things. But <clears throat> basically, it's their error, their blindness, their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, their lack of discernment, all of those things. And Jesus knows that all of that is very easily contagious throughout the entire church. I mean, these Jewish leaders were teaching that the coming Messiah has all the power and all the answers. They said they believe but they weren't living it out. What they were living out was that they themselves had all the power and all the righteousness. They believe in the coming Messiah, but they're not getting in that wheelbarrow and turning control over to him. They're defiant and they refuse to see it. Even though Jesus just said it unmistakably in Mark one, when you remember when he said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is here. I am the good news. So Jesus is warning the disciples of this because he knows how contagious it is and that they're still blind too. Now their blindness is different. It's not a defiant blindness like the Pharisees. It's just an unawareness blindness, a weak faith, a forgetful blindness. But you notice there are some things they didn't forget. Like how many baskets were left, the exact number in the one that just happened and the one that happened a while ago. They didn't forget that. They're so preoccupied by the details But they forget how it all came to be. Missing the point that Jesus provided so much that there's a surplus. There's an overflow. And now in the boat, they're worried about it all over again for the third time. Where are we going to get bread? Forgetting the signs that they've been seeing as they follow him, hour after hour, time after time. Forgetting how they know Scripture that in God in Exodus provided manna every day for the people. Forgetting that Jesus always provides enough with surplus so jesus asked them all these introspective questions pleading hoping that they will get it that he is the christ not that that they, that i can make more bread and take care of that but wanting him to get it that he's the christ so when i was a kid and read that that's what i thought it meant don't you understand yet i can make enough bread don't worry about the bread now some of the commentaries said he was actually scolding them with all these questions I don't know if that's true. It probably is, since he used the same kind of language um, when he was talking to a rebellious Jewish nation in uh, the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. <clears throat> so he probably was. But the important thing here, either way, is that we can see that Jesus really, really wants them to get it, not just in their heads, but in their hearts to a point that it changes their lives. But they're just not there yet. Because they're so distracted, not by pretending To have all the answers like the Pharisees, but by performing these tasks of counting baskets, devising a plan to get bread. They're distracted by that, so they have forgetful hearts. Again, cutting Jesus out of the equation, and they're actually blind to what's standing right in front of them. You look at that and you think, how is that possible? I mean, I'm not even a Bible scholar, and I get it. Really? In our heads, maybe, but how much in our hearts? Have you ever spoken that Jesus is the better everything and you still look to your own answers instead, like we said earlier? Wanting our name on the list of sermon credits? Or running to Google or Siri for the information to assure us on that blood test that the doctor's running before we sit down and pray to God? Or maybe it's this assurance. Pushing hard for laws or politicians to be changed so that our society has an easier path to continue being Christians. We don't want the oppression in this country that other countries have. So we're gonna do it on a political level. We get worked up and we get passionate. We tell people of the atrocious story of how schools are outlawing Bibles in their schools. And those things are atrocious and we should hope and pray that they go away and that our country changes. But here's the thing. Do we push just as hard and get ourselves just as worked up and just as heartbroken about people who miss the gospel? Like Sam said a couple of weeks ago, we're all evangelists for something. We can find answers to our worrisome questions, or we can outlaw things that are sin, but all that spiritual junk food just preoccupies us and can't affect kingdom matters. In fact, it's the other way around. Pouring into kingdom matters, God can use to necessarily affect all those other things say that again all that spiritual junk food cannot affect the kingdom matters but pouring into kingdom matters god can use that to necessarily change and affect all of those other things jesus is the better medical search engine he's a better politician he's a better jonah he's a better everything deserving all the attention knowing that in our hearts, the joy of knowing where we're going to spend eternity, that bread of the gospel that Jesus provides is always enough with plenty to spare. So what is it we're evangelizing? The beauty of the kingdom or the blinding distractions? All right, the boat trip's over. They arrive on the shore. They get out. They take the short hike up to Bethsaida, the village. And the people bring him a blind man and they beg him to touch him. So this miracle isn't listed in any of the other Gospels. It's exclusive just to Mark. And he might be using this as another one of those Markan sandwiches that we've talked about, this being the center layer of the sandwich. Because we just read about the disciples not getting it at all. And next week we're going to learn about the disciples starting to get it, sort of a progressive sanctification. And so right in the middle he's got the story of this blind man who progressively gets to see. <clears throat> But notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say that the people asked Jesus to heal him or to make him see. They just begged him to touch him. It doesn't say whether they were believers in Jesus as their Savior or not. Um, Some people just showed up because they wanted a magic show. They wanted entertainment for miracles. Or there are others that showed up just out of selfish reasons because they wanted their problems fixed. That's the only time they needed Jesus, just to relieve them of some emotional or physical discomfort. But some of these people certainly have heard of Jesus' miracles, and uh, this group, at least, must have believed that Jesus' touch was very powerful. Excuse me. So, what does Jesus do? He doesn't point with a flash of a lightning bolt and a boom of thunder and fix this man's blindness. This is not one of those dramatic events. He makes it very personal and very tender. He takes the man by the hand, and he lead. Can can you picture that? The Christ, the King, taking someone just by the hand and leading him gently across the rough terrain out of the village? Why did he lead him out? I think two things. One, it gives us foreshadowing of the crucifixion where Jesus is going to be outside of the city when he performs the greatest healing ever. And second, um, Bethsaida was known for resisting Jesus. They were kind of like Tyre and Sidon that Sam talked about before, um, they weren't just unaware, they were defiant. So this miracle, if it's performed in public, could actually be a distraction and could become more of a, a famous spectacle rather than um, Jesus being known as the Savior. So he didn't want that here. This wasn't to influence big numbers. <clears throat> but even though Beseda was an entire geographical village and it was considered lost, you can see Jesus still had great compassion on the people of the village. This man in particular, this is one example of it. He shows an even more personal tenderness when he lays hands on him for the healing. That wasn't always done in all of the miracles. <clears throat> but he uses, yes, his own very personal saliva to moisten the man's eyes and heal him. Now, I get it, you know, the grossness of spit. But uh, picture it more like uh, a mother who licks her thumb and wipes the ketchup off the corner of your mouth when you're a kid. It, doesn't, it, it turns out it's not so gross. Okay, it's still a little gross. But it's not so gross because of the caring, loving touch and the connection between mother and child. Jesus wants this to be a very, very personable and personal and tender experience. Now a question frequently comes up, why did Jesus heal in two phases? Why didn't he just do it at once like he did before? What's the purpose of that? Well, there's a lot said about that, but I don't want to spend too much time here. Basically, he's showing us the idea of progressive sanctification again how he will continue to pursue us, and how he'll bring followers along in faith along with him. He'll show us just the right amount of sin. He'll reveal to us just the right amount of grace, just the right amount of understanding, all at the appropriate time, all in the appropriate amounts. Despite any kind of incomplete response we might have, his timing is perfect. And then you see this man isn't distracted. I mean, he just regained his sight. How ramped up would you be if you were seeing nothing and now you saw stuff even if it was a little bit blurry? He's not distracted by that. He's not running out. He was so humble to admit to Jesus, I I don't really see all that well. He wasn't afraid to admit it and humbly wait for Jesus to do more. Even in our imperfect faith with all our doubts, and all our questions, he continues to pursue us tenderly, lovingly, longing with that stenazzo type of anguish to progressively sanctify us. In 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, it even says, For now I see dimly, but then I will see all things clearly. Jesus shows him everything clearly, and then what happens? He sends him home. It's important to realize here that we know for certain he had compassion and love on folks that were from the lousy parts of town and that are just known for defying him. I love that. Sam said two weeks ago that Jesus doesn't hate or despise the people that we do. Jesus reached out to the people of Sidon, the people of Tyre, the people of Bethsaida where there was a history of defiance and sometimes even downright brutality. He even intentionally went to Dalmanutha where he knew the Pharisees would be and he knew they were plotting to kill him. How hard is that? See, for me, it's easy to have compassion on the people who are obviously hurting because they're victims of something. I'm not so ready to have compassion or love, much less anguish that hurts me deep inside for the folks who've cooked their own goose or who resist me or who despise me or even worse, who hurt me. I spent time in a place where I was despised by a great many people simply because of who I was and what my education was. And it was made undeniably clear, both verbally and non-verbally. That because of my ugly, pl- ugly pride and my fleshly resentment, I wasn't in anguish for their souls. And I'm embarrassed to admit to you that sometimes I'm exactly like Jeff has said in one of his sermons. Sometimes we're like, oh, they can go to hell. Now, thankfully, God's starting to change me and he's, he's starting to give me a heart for people who despise me. But in my flesh, I tend to set myself up as judge, jury, and executioner because at some level, I think they deserve it. Now sure, sometimes people resist the gospel and, and it's time to shake the, the dust from your sandals and move on like Jesus did with the Pharisees. But even then, do I do that while passionately and deeply desiring for God to somehow, some way, still save them. Or do I just do it flippantly? No big deal. Eh. God'll save them if He wants them, not my problem. I think they deserve it, excuse me. News flash to self, I deserve it. I deserve that. Isn't that the justice we always ask for? Hey, I want justice. Well, the justice is I'm a sinner and I deserve to go to hell and spend eternity in damnation. I'm so not like Jesus. And I so much need him as my Savior. All three settings, these folks had Jesus right in front of them. We got the religious leaders plotting defiantly against him, distracted by their self-righteous hearts we got the disciples distracted by their need for bread, giving them forgetful hearts. Both groups cutting Jesus out of their equation. The Pharisees missing out on everything. The disciples missing out on much. And we have a man that brings nothing but blindness and a humble heart. <clears throat> and we see Jesus tenderly, lovingly, and completely healing him and he's missing out on nothing and he gets to go home they all three need their brokenness fixed by jesus and by jesus alone see it's not about what we receive or don't receive it's not about bread or sight it's about the one in whom we believe god is god over overall and we're distracted by earthly things like self-righteousness that might look like success or power or control We get preoccupied by our need for daily routine, which might be grocery shopping or going to work or paying bills, walking the dog, our safety, our health. Or how about this one? Here's a little sidebar. How many of you spend an incredible amount of time protecting your kids from worldly disappointment and adversities at all costs? Is that your bread? God doesn't do that, does he? He allows trials in our lives because He knows that it drives us to dependence on Him. How about letting your kids experience a little trial, a little natural consequence, and teaching them that pressing hard into God is the way to walk through that instead of avoiding. Okay, end of the sidebar. So all those things are are things that we use to find our comfortable spots where we just want to be. Because they're the bread plan, they're the scrambling so that our comfort and our routine and our lack of trials gives us happiness of worldly assurance. They also give us forgetful hearts. Forgetful of Jesus' power, forgetful of our own identity as the one that the King, for no other reason except His choice, handpicked us out of a crowd to save from damnation And we're forgetful of the unfathomable beauty of the kingdom. And kingdom matters. Here's another Charles Spurgeon thing. He says that as believers that are called by grace and washed by the precious blood of Jesus, that we have tasted a better drink than the muddy river of the world's pleasures. We've had fellowship with Christ. We've obtained the joy of seeing Jesus and we're leaning our head on his chest. After that, how can the amusements, the songs, the honors, or the laughter of this earth make us content? It's way, way too often that I focus on the creations instead of the Creator. So if your self-righteous heart's keeping you from accepting the forgiveness that Jesus has to offer, just confess that. Confess that to God first and then share it with someone you trust. Ask them to walk through it with you. In the hope that you might believe in Jesus' righteousness to save instead of your own. Or if you need various breads in your life that are distracting you and making you forget that He forgives your sins. No matter what. Oh, not my sins. Oh, they're too much. Yes, your sins. Just confess that. Confess that you think He's not big enough to do that. Confess it to God. And then share it with somebody again that you trust so that they can walk through it with you. Walking through it together as church family matters. Corporate worship as family matters. Communion with God through prayer, sometimes alone, sometimes together with others, matters. It also matters that we rejoice in answered prayer and celebrate together. Knowing Him better through Scripture matters. These are all the conduits that God can use to give us those blind, humble hearts that will come to Him and receive total and complete healing with nothing else added. Isn't this all just the gospel story of redemption? How we need God's unconditional, unbreakable, unending love and His pursuit of us who sin against Him. A love that fixes everything that our sin has broken between us and the Father. that we're helpless and we bring nothing at all to the table. Yet it's His tender love that takes away our blindness and shows us the way home. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that He makes a fuss over us. Zephaniah 5.13 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. It's not what we receive or what we don't receive, but the one in whom we believe. Jesus is the only one who can give us sight to see everything clearly. We can get in the wheelbarrow, and we can go over the high wire, remembering that God is God all. so while these guys get ready for our next song if you need to just take some time and stay seated if you want to if not stand up but take some time and, and look back and confess those things that are distracting you confess that they're causing you to not give God all the power spend some time alone with him and then share it with somebody so that you can walk through it together oh Lord oh Lord how much we need You. When we bring our own knowledge, Lord, we need You to defend us against hearts distracted from kingdom matters by self-righteousness. And God, when we scramble to bring our own plan, Lord, we need You to defend us against hearts that are distracted from kingdom matters by forgetfulness. And when we bring nothing, Jesus, we know You'll give us humble hearts Heal us with your righteousness and send us home. Thank you, God, for being God over all. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.